Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Natalie Meebane, U.S. Policy Director with 350.org, who assesses President Biden's proposed $2 trillion American jobs plan and its capacity to address the global climate crisis. Lynn Paramore, Senior Research Analyst with the Institute for New Economic Thinking, who warns that hedge fund predators could thwart the national effort to move away from fossil fuels and adopt clean energy technologies. And Georgia activist Cheryl Renee Moses, who talks about the campaign she's leading to remove Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, from office through a recall election. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Myanmar's generals, who led the coup that deposed the democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi, launched a new wave of violence on Armed Forces Day, firing live ammunition at anti-coup protesters in 40 cities, killing over 100 people. The junta also launched attacks on ethnic rebel areas, forcing 3,000 people to flee across the border into Thailand. Myanmar's Assistance Association for Political Prisoners reports mounting violence since the February 1st military takeover that killed at least 550 civilians, including 46 children. More than 2,700 people have been imprisoned or sentenced, the group said. The Army's airstrikes and bombings targeting rebel-held areas risks a massive escalation as ethnic rebels in Kachin, Karen, and Rakhine states denounce the coup and pledge to defend protesters in their territories. In Karen state near the Thai border, refugee areas have been bombed. The Free Burma Rangers Aid Group reports airstrikes have displaced 20,000 people. In 2015, the Karen National Union signed a ceasefire with the Myanmar government but set the agreement aside after the coup. Mexico, which recently revised its COVID-19 death toll 60% higher than previously reported, now has the world's second highest number of deaths after the U.S. More than 320,000 deaths are attributed to the virus. Based on this more accurate count of coronavirus fatalities, Mexico's mortality rate is 255 per 100,000 inhabitants, higher than the official rate of any other nation. Mexico has given out about 6.1 million vaccinations thus far, out of a population of nearly 130 million. National Public Radio reports wealthy Mexicans have recently been traveling to U.S. cities, including Miami and San Diego, to get COVID vaccinations. The U.S. recently announced it would release 2.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to Mexico. Mexico has experienced a surge in COVID cases since February, with over 27,000 COVID deaths reported. Hugo lopez Gatel, Mexico's COVID czar, warned that the country risked a new wave of infections as millions prepared to attend family gatherings during the Easter holiday. President Andres Manuel López Obrador has been widely criticized for Mexico's slow response to the pandemic until the president himself was infected with a virus. 
Now Obrador is aggressively looking to purchase vaccines from the U.S., China, and Russia. In the aftermath of the Republican 2020 sweep of the New Hampshire House and Senate, a major fight has erupted over an effort to make the Granite State a right-to-work state. Previously, Democrats had blocked the right-wing campaign to make New Hampshire the first right-to-work state in the Northeast. Right-to-work laws, which originated in the Jim Crow South, prohibit unions from negotiating contracts that require dues from non-union members for the benefits provided by the union, a change that would choke off union funding. Over the past decade, the laws have expanded into labor strongholds like Michigan and Wisconsin. The U.S. labor movement has much at stake in the fate of the right-to-work legislation, which is backed by the Koch-funded Americans for Prosperity, the Libertarian Free State Project, and out-of-state anti-union groups with very deep pockets. A legislative showdown could occur in early April after New Hampshire's House Labor Committee approved the right-to-work bill in a partisan 11-9 vote. In These Times magazine reports the legislature's strict rules mandating in-person voting during the coronavirus pandemic has improved the odds that New Hampshire could pass the right-to-work legislation. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. President Joe Biden's American Jobs Plan proposes spending $2 trillion over eight years for everything from repairing roads and bridges to replacing lead drinking water pipes to providing funds for living wages to caregivers. The plan, if implemented, would also improve mass transit, rail, and broadband. The cost of the infrastructure plan would be paid for by raising the corporate tax halfway back to 35%, what it was before Donald Trump's massive corporate tax giveaway, that is, by raising it from 21 to 28 percent. Although due to various loopholes, no corporation paid anything close to that rate, and some major corporations paid no taxes at all. Some on the left are celebrating the fact that Biden is calling for increased spending that will favor lower-income Americans and create lots of good-paying jobs. Others say $2 trillion over eight years is nowhere near what's needed, and point to some progressive groups in Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who maintain $16 trillion in infrastructure spending, is needed over the next decade. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Natalie Meebane, U.S. Policy Director of the Climate Activist Group 350.org, about how her organization views Biden's proposed American jobs plan and what further steps are required to effectively address the threat of climate change. It is sort of a balance. It has a lot of great things in it that we love. For me, one of my favorites is that it plans to replace all lead pipes across America. We all know so much about Flint, but there are so many places that have the exact same problem and it's not gonna get fixed on its own. So that was one of the things I really liked about it. Um, I also think that having the infrastructure to really build electric vehicles in terms of actually creating the infrastructure so that 
we can charge them. Um, you know, the same thing if you have a gas car, if there were no gas stations, you couldn't really drive. And so investing in that transition, I think is exactly what we need. So there are a lot of things that I was really excited about in terms of the actual plan. In terms of some of the things that we're still hearing may not be in line with what we want. And of course, we have to confirm it when we see the exact language, but things like possibly supporting nuclear. Um, that's something I'm really looking to see if it includes that or not, as well as people talking that it might include carbon capture and sequestration throughout it. And that's something that I'm, it's really giving me pause because we have such a short period of time to really make the big investments necessary to completely get off dangerous and dirty energy. And investing billions more dollars in false solutions is not going to do it. So we don't want to see a dime invested in carbon capture and sequestration, which really a lot of folks don't know too much about it, but it's really just a ploy from a lot of fossil fuel companies to keep their industry going, saying we'll promise to capture our admission, to let us keep polluting, let us still expand. And the same thing with nuclear. There's a reason why we haven't had nuclear plants built in decades. It's way too expensive. It's dirty and it's not sustainable and it's not something that we should invest in for the future. Natalie Meebane, I don't know if there's much specifics in it about mass transit. There is this thing about electrifying buses, but really promoting that, which is also really challenging in the era of COVID because many people fled from the buses and a lot of people aren't going back. That's really a problem, but where should the emphasis be in terms of expanding both rail and transit? Right now, electric cars are seen as a luxury of folks who can afford them, and that needs to change. Um, I think that if we actually replace our fleet of vehicles with electric vehicles, that becomes the standard, not the exception. And so in terms of making them more affordable, yes, not every electric car needs to be a Tesla, but the fact that we don't even have real options in the market to choose from when people are buying a car is a problem. And when more electric vehicles are on the road, they will become cheaper just like any other vehicle. So I don't think that the price point is going to be a restriction for much longer, especially if we have the infrastructure built, because then people will actually be more likely to purchase electric car and overall the production will increase and the cost will come down. In terms of investing in, you said like light rail and electric buses, I think it's just part of overhauling our system of transportation overall. You know, 70% of the oil that we use in the United States is used for transportation. In fact, for greenhouse gas emissions, transportation is the largest contributor followed by power plants. If we transition completely off of fossil fuels for our transportation, for buses, for cars, for all those things, and at the same time, scrub the energy grid of dirty energy, then we're getting a two-for-one deal, essentially. We're getting clean energy to power our transportation, and we're, we're obviously getting fossil fuels out of the energy sector. Our whole infrastructure is built, unfortunately, in a country uh, really dependent on the car. And I think that this plan also helps change that a bit by investing in light rail. So I do believe that overall, you have to put the investment into the infrastructure for people to be able to change their behavior. Right now, it may not be feasible for you to take a train on a trip someplace that you want to go unless you're out of the, you know, the Northeast Mid-Atlantic corridor. Um, but if we have the option of taking the train, I think a lot of people would choose that over a vehicle. Does 350 have a position on nukes and when to shut them down? We do have a position definitely on 
we should absolutely positively not build any new nuclear plants anywhere in the country. In terms of allowing current plants to continue, I think you just have to have a phase out plan the same way you would for any other power plant. But that is why you start building renewable energy so that you can actually phase out these dirty plants and not have an interruption within the power grid. On top of that, energy efficiency is one of the main ways that we can actually prevent uh, the need for new power plants. And in fact, if we invested overall in energy efficiency, not only would it create jobs everywhere, but the best energy is the energy that you don't use to begin with. And so part of updating our infrastructure and our grid is also focusing on energy efficiency, not just new power generation. That was Natalie Meebane, U.S. Policy Director with the Climate Activist Group, 350.org. Find more analysis and commentary on President Biden's American Jobs Plan by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. President Biden announced his $2 trillion infrastructure plan on March 31st that he says would deliver a once-in-a-generation investment in the United States that's focused on infrastructure, the care economy, climate, and create good-paying jobs. The American Jobs Plan, as the White House is calling it, is advertised as the most important climate legislation in U.S. history. While all the specific details of the plan are not yet known, it appears that at least $1 trillion would go to sectors that fall under the broad umbrella of climate change, clean energy, and environmental justice. But Lynn Paramore, a senior analyst with the Institute for New Economic Thinking, is warning that billionaire financiers have made sure the companies the government must partner with to achieve critical goals, like clean energy, are instead focused on further enriching predatory hedge fund executives. According to Paramore, these predators force companies to play Wall Street casino games with their resources instead of investing in research and development to produce new clean energy technologies to more effectively combat the climate change crisis. Your reporter spoke with Lynn Paramore, who talks about her concern that hedge fund predators could thwart the national effort to move away from fossil fuels and adopt clean energy that's laid out in her recent article titled Meet the New Koch Brothers, the Hedge Fund Activists Wrecking America's Green New Deal. Well, if you think about something like the infrastructure and climate proposal that President Biden just unveiled, one of the things he said about it is that uh, he wants to boost America's innovative edge and become a global leader in markets like uh, computer chips and clean energy. You know, all these things are very important to infrastructure and, uh, and clean technology. And he wants to be competitive with China in particular. Well, there is something about the way American corporations have been operating for the last few decades, really since the 1980s, that poses a real problem if you want to be competitive with China. And that has to do with a kind of Wall Street-focused activity. So big companies that the government would need to partner with to make the products, do the manufacturing and the implementing of uh, various parts of a big proposal like Biden. You know, the government can't just snap its fingers and make computer chips. So what hedge funds have been doing, if you remember back in the 80s, we used to hear about these characters called corporate raiders. 
If you remember Oliver Stone's movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko was a corporate raider. He's the one that said greed is good. And these guys would look for companies that were in trouble, take them over, strip them down, fire everyone, extract whatever value they could, and then hit the road. So they have descendants that are with us today, and they are known as uh, shareholder activists. And that's a misleading term because when you and I think about the word activist, we probably think of somebody trying to do good, trying to make society better. But these particular activists, um, which which are mainly hedge fund managers, are up to something very different. And it's a predatory activity where they look at a company and they decide to start buying up shares of that company. And what they want is to make a profit as quickly as possible on those shares. So they will start pressuring the company to do things that will boost the stock price in the short run, jack it up with whatever tricks they can conjure up, one of those being stock buybacks. That's when a company buys outstanding shares of its own stock with its profits and its its money, buys them up. So now you have fewer shares. This means each share is now worth more money. So anybody who owns shares, such as the hedge fund activist, has just made a quick profit. Now they can dump the stock and get out of there. It's called pump and dump. Pump up the stock price, then dump it after you've made a profit. Now what's the problem with that? The problem is that the money the company has used to do those stock buybacks could have been used for much better purposes, like research and development, like attracting and retaining the best talent, like manufacturing, all of the kinds of things you would need a company to do if they're going to partner with you as a, in the Biden administration for um, any kind of big infrastructure or uh, climate project. So these companies have been hamstrung by these hedge fund activists that are only interested in making a buck as quickly as possible, and they really don't care about the long-term sustainability or health of the company or is it anything the company might want to do in the, in the way of making products in, in the future. They're all about the short term. So they are holding American companies back. Well, then. As you lay out in your article, there are several important reforms that could be made here generally in terms of how corporations operate in the U.S., but more specifically, conditions that could be set up for major government investments in corporations as we go forward with the infrastructure investments as proposed by Biden's American Jobs Plan. If you're going to get subsidies, then you have to play by certain rules. I I think that's where we should begin. And number one is you cannot do stock buybacks for the duration of the contract. You know, you do whatever you want after it's done, but not while you're receiving government subsidies. Uh, No way. Uh, You know, and you you have to have oversight. You have to make these companies accountable. And and one way of doing that is to place – public representatives on the company boards or maybe workers on the company boards. But you you need to have some kind of countervailing force against these hedge fund activists who end up just taking the boards over and, and calling the shots for the company. You cannot have hedge fund activists calling the shots for a company that the government, that taxpayers are paying to step up to the plate and participate in these projects. So there has to be oversight, there has to be accountability, and no more stock buybacks. That was Lynn Paramore, a senior research analyst 
at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Find a link to her recent article, Meet the New Koch Brothers, the Hedge Fund Activists Wrecking America's Green New Deal, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The state of Georgia has been the focus of national attention for months now, since the state's voters gave Joe Biden an unexpected victory, becoming the first Democratic presidential candidate to win there in 28 years. The state surprised again when Democratic Senate candidates John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock defeated two incumbent Republicans in the January 5th runoff election, victories which gave Democrats control of the U.S. Senate. President Trump failed in his attempt to subvert Georgia's election results when he placed a call to Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffsenberger, pressuring him to find enough votes to overturn Joe Biden's win. But in response to their narrow electoral losses, the Republican-controlled state legislature drafted new restrictive voting laws that curtail ballot access targeting communities of color and those likely to support Democrats makes it a crime to offer food and water to people waiting in voting lines, and empowers the GOP-led legislature to suspend county election officials. Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed the bill into law on March 25th. Georgia has now become the nation's laboratory for this year's Republican-sponsored voter suppression laws, where some 361 restrictive voting bills have been proposed in 47 states across the U.S. Voter suppression opponents are applying pressure to Georgia-based corporations, including Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, and Home Depot, to take a stand on the issue. Bowing to that pressure, Major League Baseball moved its July All-Star game out of Atlanta in protest of the voting restrictions. Your reporter spoke with Georgia political activist Cheryl Renee Moses, publisher of Black Gwinnett Magazine, who talks about the effort she's now leading to collect the signatures necessary to conduct a recall election to remove Georgia Governor Bryant Kemp from office for signing the voter suppression law and his mishandling of the state's coronavirus pandemic. Yes, Georgia is definitely the testing ground for all Republican-led uh, voter suppression tactics that we see and know of in the United States. Once it works here in Georgia, it is then rolled out uh, across the country. Now, what we see in Georgia happening now with these crazy voter suppression laws is white supremacy standing up. When we hear them talk about securing the vote, uh, Georgia had the most secure election that just happened. And even Repub the Republicans are the ones that stamped that, although we all know that, who live here and were, you know, had boots on the ground getting the votes out and monitoring the vote and the count after the election. And so for them to now use the bogus excuse that this is to protect the vote, you know, uh, again, this is voter suppression, but it's done in our faces. It's as if we, we don't see you. We don't, we don't know what you're doing. And to me, it's such an insult 
to the voters of Georgia. And we know when they said, you know, the election was a fraud, that was saying that the black and brown folks who voted, their vote shouldn't count. From stopping people from giving water and something to eat to folks standing in three, four, five, six-hour lines, making that a crime in the state of Georgia. What does that have to do with securing the election? Nothing. So we need to recall Governor Kemp. Georgia has a really hard-to-follow process for recalling elected officials, but it can be done. It's based on a number of days after they give you approval to actually run a petition. There are a lot of details in the process that most folks don't follow or have a hard time following. But we've put together a team, and we are looking to recall Governor Brian Kemp, definitely for signing this voter suppression bill, but also his handling of COVID-19 in our state. So that is what we are doing now. Uh, We have a number of organizations and voters who are ready to go. So I'm leading that along with some other concerned folks here in Georgia. Uh, Because we have to hit voter suppression from every angle that we can. We have organizations who are suing because of these laws. We have organizations who are doing serious contacting corporations, getting them to pick a side. Because this really is not about what party you're affiliated with politically. It's about democracy and what this country stands on. Being able to vote, that's just as human as the air we breathe. So we don't want to wait until he's up for re-election. We feel that he should be removed now. The longer he's in office, the more damage he can do to the state of Georgia. The bar is pretty high in terms of the process of recall elections in Georgia, as I understand it. Initially, you have to get 100 sponsors. But the really high bar is gathering 1,100,000 signatures to put a recall ballot during the next election. Which organizations are you working with to to collect those signatures? Because that's a big job, of course. It is, but we will have ambassadors in each one of our counties who will be securing signatures because there is, is a stipulation that so many districts have to be covered by the folks who are on the uh, petition as as signers as well. But 1,250,000 voter signatures, that's our goal. And that's doable. It has to be done over three months. Folks didn't think we could flip Georgia blue, but we did that. Um, And we have momentum behind us. Uh, Black Gwinnett Magazine, of course, the Gwinnett County Black Chamber of Commerce, and we're going to do what we have to do to make this happen. That was Cheryl Renee Moses, leader of the campaign, to remove Georgia Governor Brian Kemp from office through a recall election. Moses is publisher of Black Gwinnett Magazine and founder of the Come Meet a Black Person organization. Learn more about the Georgia recall effort by visiting our Between the Lines website, at btlonline.org.
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, WLSL in St. Leo, Florida, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.